I'm sure if you're like me, you love to receive letters or emails. Now, you maybe saw that film. I've never had that on the computer. You've got mail. But you always know if your inbox has an unread email and you go to it, you click on it and think, who's sending me an email? But sometimes you do so and you find out that it's not an email sent to you personally but one that is almost like a circular email or a circular letter that's intended for many people and when you get something like that or when I get something like that I feel a bit downhearted thinking well you know it wasn't really for me personally it's just something that people send out and I have to confess to those who do do these forward things uh, we don't take a lot of notice of them Sorry for that, but unless it's addressed to us personally, uh, it kind of gets pushed to the side. But sometimes you get those kind of letters or emails. It's not a personal one, but it's a circular letter or a circular email. It's, a, it's intended for many people. In actual fact, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is believed to be such a letter. And although in our Bibles it is addressed to the saints in Ephesus, if you look in your Bible, the very first verse in Ephesians, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. But perhaps your, your Bible might have a footnote, as mine does, and it says some early manuscripts do not have in Ephesus. The original letter, it is believed, had a blank space where the name of in Ephesus is. And so it's thought that Paul wrote the letter, not with any particular address, just with that blank space, and as it was brought round to each church in Asia Minor, their name would be read out instead of the blank space. And so, for example, when the uh, carrier of the letter would come to Laodicea, he would read out to the saints in Laodicea. Why then is it called to the Ephesians? Well, the name of Ephesus eventually became attached to it because this was the principal city of that region. Now you may not have heard that before, and it might make you feel a bit uneasy. Well, I always thought this was the letter to the Ephesians. Now we're being told it wasn't to the Ephesians. Well, it shouldn't make us feel uneasy, because the fact, knowing that it was not just to the Ephesians, means that this letter was also written to us as well. So we can add the name of our church to this letter, to the saints in ICA, Taravieka. Ephesians was written by Paul around AD 60, while he was under house arrest in Rome. And it forms part of what's called his prison epistles, which include a Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. And in this epistle to the Ephesians, we'll call it that, 
Paul gives a wonderful exposition on the church as God's new society. And since in this epistle, unlike many of the others, there is no reference to local disputes or difficulties. Like in Corinth, he speaks about those who follow Paul, those who follow Cephas, Peter, those who follow Christ. There is no specific difficulties or disputes found in this letter. So that means that it can speak into every age and every situation, including our own. What Paul wrote in the first century is as relevant for us in the 21st century. And if we want to know what a church should believe and how it should behave, we need to read this epistle. It's a short letter, six chapters, and they divide neatly in half. The first three deal with doctrine, what we ought to believe as Christians. And the last three deal with duty, how we ought to behave. Now someone might say, well, I have my own personal faith in God. I know all the doctrines. So how I live my life is of no consequence. Or someone else may claim, well, I live a good, upright life. I hurt no one. So what I believe doesn't matter. Well, both of these attitudes are wrong because we cannot separate our belief from our behavior. They both go together. For example, if you believe that life only begins at birth, well then, having an abortion right up until that point will be no problem at all. But if you believe that life actually begins at conception, then you will do all in your power to preserve the sanctity of that life. The other end of the scale, if you believe that a life is only valuable if they can make a financial contribution to the well-being of society, well then, if anyone is too old or too infirm or too handicapped in order to hold down a job, to contribute to society, you have no problem in saying, well, just get rid of those people. Practice euthanasia or assisted suicide. But again, if you believe that every life is created and made in the image of God, no matter how able-bodied or disabled-bodied or in the mind they are, you will want to preserve their life. And hold on to that sanctity. So what we believe does affect how we behave. In the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul expands on his address to the, the recipients. To the saints. And he shows them what it means to be saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. They have been called, chosen and blessed in Christ. They are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Made one in him and united together 
has his body. From chapter 4 to the end, he shows them in a practical way how to live a life worthy of that calling. So how can we live a life worthy of our calling? I want to concentrate on the last few verses of our reading this morning, verses 15 to 20. And this comes at the end of a long section entitled in the NIV, Living as Children of Light. And in these verses, Paul says that we are no longer foolish, but wise. No longer filled with wine, but with the Spirit. So from folly to wisdom, and I'm going to read those verses 15 to 17. Okay, that should come up. That's it. Be be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So from folly to wisdom. You know, of course, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit and not a vegetable. Hope everybody knew that. So that is knowledge. We have that knowledge. We know that a tomato is a fruit and it's not a vegetable. Wisdom is not adding it to your fruit salad. Wisdom is one of those qualities that it seems some possess in abundance and others just wouldn't know it if it hit them between the eyes. But James tells us in his letter That we all can have wisdom if we simply ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. The wisest man in the world, Solomon, tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9 verse 10. And in his book of Proverbs, He contrasts the life of folly with that of wisdom. Folly, or living as unwise, is more than simple stupidity. It's not what we think of as being a bit, you know, off-beam. No. When the Bible talks about folly or foolishness, it's talking about someone who is morally deficient. A fool is someone who has rejected God and gone their own way. It's another way of describing those who live in darkness. I have an uncle at home, Uncle Sammy. He turned 90 this year. He's my late father's oldest brother. And as far as I'm aware, he's the only member of that um, side of the family who is a Christian. He became a Christian later in life in his 30s. But he has been a a wonderful witness for the Lord 
throughout his long life. And I remember him telling us one time, I think it was somebody at work, he worked in uh, Shorts, the aircraft factory. And he became a Christian and he was witnessing to his fellow workers. And someone came to him and said, Oh, I don't believe in God. And he looked at him. My uncle Sammy said, You know, the Bible mentions you. He says, What? Yes, the Bible mentions you. Thinking it was his name. And he took his Bible and he looked up Psalm 14. He says, Here it is here. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. So a fool is someone who rejects God. And that's why Jesus, in his Sermon in the Mount, said that anyone who calls his brother, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Because if you call someone you fool, you are literally saying to them, go to hell. So Christians are not to live foolishly, but with wisdom. And as verse 16 says, we are to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. If you've got an older version, the the King James version, it actually says we are to redeem the time. That's actually closer to what Paul said. We are to redeem, buy back the time. Can you imagine waking up one morning, going to your post box, and finding a letter, and it reads something like this. Congratulations. We are pleased to announce that you are the winner of a very special prize. 86,400 euros each day for the rest of your life. This is not a gimmick. You can claim your prize, and the only condition is that you spend all 86,400 euros before the day is ended. If any money is left over after midnight, you will forfeit it. Well, I guess if we got a letter like that, we would do our mighty best to spend that money before midnight. Is this just a fantasy? Not really. Because each of us is given something much more valuable than 86,400 euros. We are given each day 86,400 seconds. And we need to be wise how we spend that time. Because if any are wasted, they are lost. And they cannot be retrieved. Once they are gone, they are gone for good. And so Paul says that we are to make the most of every opportunity that comes our way. Because, he says, the days are evil. We've seen this already as those who live in darkness. But the evil of the days does not necessarily mean that we will fall into um, detestable sins as the people of the world do. It may simply mean a case of frittering away our time, doing things that are unimportant. And that is evil enough in itself 
because it is not what God wills for us. So how do we know what is truly important so that we can give our time over to that? Have you ever come face to face with death? I don't mean the death of a loved one. I'm sure all of us have experienced that. But I mean face to face with your own death. I have. It happened about two and a half years ago at Easter 2009. I'd been out at a Good Friday service went to bed that night as normal through the night I started to get a pain shooting across my chest like a tight band somebody holding a tight band across it went up into my neck and down my left shoulder and I'd heard enough about heart attacks to know that this seemed very suspicious I mentioned in the morning, about 7 o'clock in the morning to Arin Maria, I didn't feel too well. She thought it was maybe a stomach upset. And I said, no, I've got a pain in my chest. And so she got up. She phoned the uh, doctor on call. Eventually got hold of the doctor. Uh, The doctor on the other line wanted to speak to me and asked me how I was feeling. is is it a sharp pain or is it like a tight band across your chest and I said yes that's what it's like where else have you got it I said up the back of my neck going down my left shoulder her very words were you tick all our boxes she said I will get you an ambulance straight away she said it should be there in five minutes if not phone me back within five minutes the ambulance came and uh, by that time, Irene Maria managed to get herself dressed and uh, uh, get ready for the ambulance men coming. One of them came up the stairs and he says, Right, where's this young man? Opened the door, looked at me, says, Oh, you are a young man. And they examined me, they gave me an injection, they gave me tablets, and uh, they spoke to Arian Maria and said this doesn't look too good they got me onto uh, a little movable seat carried me down the stairs into the ambulance and to the hospital and I was wired up on the monitor Uh, I was given shots of morphine uh, to ease the pain taken blood tests and I was lying there for several hours I Maria eventually was able to come in and be with me but we had to wait for the doctor's report they take blood I'm sure many of you know this they take blood uh, at a certain time leave it for a while take another sample of blood and they can tell from that if there's been any damage to the heart and so we had a, a, a few anxious hours of waiting Eventually, the doctor, the consultant, came and he said, Well, Mr. Campbell, I can assure you that there's nothing wrong with your heart. And we both breathed a sigh of relief. What it was 
was a lung infection. In other words, it was silent pneumonia. I had no symptoms of that, just this pain that came during the night. But he did say that uh, that condition can give the same symptoms as that of a heart attack. But they kept me in overnight, kept me under observation. Ari Maria stayed in the hospital uh, along with me. And then the next morning, which was Easter Sunday, uh, we got uh, the visit from the doctor again to say that everything seemed fine and I could be discharged. And it was a wonderful relief. And being Easter Sunday, it was almost like a personal resurrection. But when you come to a moment like that, when you are facing death in that way, it gives you a wake-up call. And it makes you think, when you think of your own death, it makes you start to appreciate what is truly important. Christians are to be wise people, not fools. Redeeming the time, those 86,400 seconds that we are given each and every day. Making the most of every opportunity that God grants to us. And as we walk in his way, we will discern what his will is for us, both as individuals and corporately as a church. The second thing that Paul says in these verses is that we are not to be filled with wine, but with the Spirit. And uh, put up the, the reading. Yeah, that's it. So reading from verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here, Paul contrasts between those who live in the light and those who live in the darkness. And the contrast is the influence that they are under. Now this, I do not believe, is a prohibition on taking wine as such, but rather on drinking to excess. They are not to get drunk or fill themselves with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And Paul here is perhaps thinking of certain religious cults in his day, which practiced such things as intoxicating themselves with wine, which led to frenzied and ecstatic behavior, believing that this was the way to experience spiritual elation. But Paul says, no, being under the influence of alcohol leads only to debauchery and immorality, whereas being under the influence of the Spirit of God helps us to be self-controlled, which is one of the fruit of the Spirit. The Christian is one who received the gift of the Spirit at conversion. It is he, the Spirit, 
who makes real to us the salvation that Christ won for us upon the cross. One of today's um, most well-known hymn writers is Stuart Townend. And one hymn that he wrote about Easter, See What a Morning, has a line about the Holy Spirit which is one of the, the best descriptions of the Holy Spirit I've ever read. He mentions the Holy Spirit as the one who clothes faith with certainty. The Holy Spirit clothes faith with certainty. Yet although each Christian possesses the Spirit, we are constantly to seek to be filled more and more with that self-same Spirit. And D.L. Moody once said that the reason I need to keep on being filled by the Spirit is because I leak. The Spirit's filling leads us to true worship. Remember when Jesus met the woman of Samaria at the well and he told her that true worshippers would worship God in spirit and in truth. Well, Paul sees that true worship is spirit-filled worship. And it overflows in praise with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now these three categories, psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, are not easily distinguishable. And this has led some denominations to use only psalm singing with no music in their worship. And indeed, the book of Psalms has been the main source of worship for both Jews and Christians throughout their long history. And Psalms are cherished as part of uh, many a church's corporate praise. And when we look at the Psalms and the the hymns and the, the songs that have been based on the Psalms, there's great depth and richness there. However, Hymn singing also has a very ancient pedigree, going back perhaps even to the New Testament. Many scholars detect snippets of hymns in Paul's epistles. If you look at verse 14 uh, of Ephesians 5, we find there what is thought to be a hymn. It says, This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper! Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Some scholars believe that this is a hymn that was sung at baptism. Corporate worship by Christians who are living in the light is to be a joyful occasion. And it was wonderful to share in the worship uh, and the singing at the beginning of our service here. And in our prayers, we are to sing psalms and hymns and songs together. To praise God, yes. But in it, we are also to encourage and exhort one another in fellowship. And in all our worship and our holy living, we are to give thanks to God. And this really is the antidote for living in darkness. It is to give thankfulness 
to God. Because at heart, sinful living is selfish living. It's looking out for me, myself, and I. And giving little or no thought to others. Gratitude turns that on its head. Giving thanks to God for all things shows that we are dependent upon Him for our daily needs. And it helps us to develop a healthy attitude towards others. Because our eyes then are taken off ourselves, up towards God, and then out towards others. Christians are those who are marked not with grumbling or complaining, who sometimes that is not the case. Sometimes we find Christians who are grumblers and complainers. This should not be. We are to be marked with thankfulness. And thankfulness for all things. Even the small things in life. Is it possible to thank God for absolutely everything? Even the things that we don't like or don't want? I believe it is. Have you heard of this lady? Yeah, Corrie Ten Boom. Well, Corrie Ten Boom, um, I know there's a film uh, about her life. I've read the book, The Hiding Place, never actually seen the film. But Corrie Ten Boom, along with her family, uh, lived in um, Harlem in uh, Holland. And they had a a watchmaker shop. And I just read on the, the internet that she was actually the first licensed female uh, watchmaker. But when the Nazis came to power and the Jews were uh, persecuted, Corrie and her family, they hid the Jews in a room in their uh, watch shop. They lived above the watch shop. And part of her bedroom was made into a hiding place where Jews and Others were hidden until they could be taken to safety. Somewhere along the line, someone told on them. The uh, guards came and they had someone hiding at the time. And they didn't find them. But all the family were arrested. Her father died within 10 days of being taken to um, in prison. Corey and her sister Betsy, they were kept in prison. And they were eventually taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp, which had a notorious um, uh, name. And many people died there. But their faith in the Lord Jesus was so strong. And they were in uh, a dorm with other women. And in this dorm, there was fleas. And if you can imagine, we get mozzy bites here. But if you can imagine sleeping in a bunk bed with fleas. It was not a nice experience. But Betsy said to Corrie, 
we must give thanks to God for all things. And Corrie said, even the fleas? Yes, said Betsy, even the fleas. And so reluctantly, Corrie gave thanks to God. She didn't know why, but she gave thanks to God for the fleas. Well, when they were able to have some spare time within the dormitory, they gathered all the other women around them, they opened the Bible, and they had a Bible study. And over the weeks, they noticed that none of the guards ever came into their dormitory. They searched the other dormitories, but they never went into their dormitory. Why? Because of the fleas. And so, Corey understood that even something that was annoying, something that she wanted rid of, was actually something that she could thank God for because there was a purpose in it. And so through their witness, they were able to lead others uh, to the Lord Jesus. If you've never read the book, The Hiding Place, I commend it to you. But we can, as Christians, even though we may not understand it at the time, we can develop that attitude of thankfulness and give thanks to God at all times and for all things. So this epistle addressed to the Ephesians as well as to us tells us that Christians are those who have been called out of darkness into light, who live not foolish lives but wise, and who are filled not with wine but with the Spirit who leads us to joyful praise and thanksgiving. So I wonder, as we think of these things, does this describe my life? Does this describe your life? Does this describe our church? Let's pray. Heavenly 